0: Nobody asked for another podcast, so here you go. This is yet
1: another infra podcast. Hi everyone, and welcome to our sixth episode of yet another infra podcast. I'm your host, vitaly Gorin, co-founder and CEO of First AI. This is a special episode. We're fortunate to have Martin Casado from A16Z for a one-on-one conversation about everything from product market fit category creation, how to build early sales teams, and more. While editing the episode, I realized that the main concept discussed market annealing is far deeper than I initially thought. So I would like to add some context that will help the listeners to understand just how important this concept is. Traditionally. We think of product market fit as the search for a magical crevice in the market that if we just convert our company enough to fit into it, we will achieve escape velocity and become a successful company. What Martin and his co-authors suggest that this is not really the case. The market shouldn't be thought of as this granite rock that cannot be adjusted, but as a metal that can be softened through a rigorous and consistent process of behavior change. But the real realization comes when you realize that the result of this process yields far more durable outcomes. Companies like HashiCorp, Sneak, and DBD Labs that are discussed in this episode, went through that process and became much more formidable exactly because they annealed their market to their vision instead of just finding a crevice to fit into. So if you like this podcast, please consider liking and subscribing. And without further ado, here is Martin Casado. Martin, thank you for joining us. For those who don't know you, you are a researcher at Stanford, a successful startup founder, one of the prominent infrastructure investors in the Valley, and of course, an infraMaxi on Yeg. So obviously today <laughs> you wanted to chat about sales. What yeah. are you passionate about this particular subject?
0: It's so interesting. One of my favorite transformations in the entire planet, this includes like caterpillars becoming butterflies is when technical founders start B2B companies and then they come up out as go-to-market savants. And the reason is the problem of go-to-market for, for B2B and for infra is just as complicated, just as nuanced, and just as necessary to success as the actual technology. And so it's a path all of us walk, which you, by the way, are walking right now. But unlike technology, I have found there are very, very few good sources. So it's almost part of this tribal lore that we collectively have to amass. And so I've taken it upon myself to be both a student and
1: somewhat pass on what I've learned. So, since you work primarily with very technical founders, many people land in that boat. That hey, Martin, I'm an amazing product visionary, and PLG is all the rage right now. Should I put all my energy into building amazing product and launching it on Hacker News and Reddit, and just wait for the customers to come? Yeah, listen, if you can do that, great, do it. It just tends to work far
0: less. Often than most founders would hope and i've found that it's typically more dictated by the market than the company on what go-to-market motion works and so if you're drafting on an existing user behavior or you have a product that somehow is simple enough and close enough to something else that it's self-explanatory it works but most new technology most of it is so different that you have to at least have an explanation. You have to at least have a conversation. And if that's the case, you can't do bottom-up. Like maybe you can get some way with content, but normally you have to talk to customers, talk to users, have communities, have discourse, go to events, all of these other things. It doesn't mean you have to do top-down sales, but it does mean that you've got to think about how you have a conversation with the market in a way that's more
1: complex than just the product itself. Since you mentioned new technologies, one term that it's constantly gets thrown on is category creation. Can you explain what category creation is and why so many people misunderstand that concept? My experience having gone to the category creation arc is that actually, if you talk to Jeffrey Moore, who is one of the great thinkers and writers
0: in this space. He defines category creation very specifically, which is you have a category once there's a budget and there's a buyer, right? And it's normally has these other externalities, like it's recognized by the analysts. It's something people talk about. I mean, that's what a category is, but having seen multiple categories get created and having gone through my own journey on these, this tends to happen in the long arc of a company, like after 100 million in ARR, 200 million in ARR. So, for example, I think Databricks is doing a great job creating a category with the Lakehouse. And I think it's a very real thing and has it adds a lot of customer value, et cetera. But this is a huge company with huge revenue and it's taken a very long time. And so, what I've found as far as like misappropriation of the term, which is, of course, the goal is category creation. And it's something you have to be thinking about a lot, but it doesn't tell you anything about how you get to your first 10 million in revenue. And this is the issue that most founders miss is they say, oh, I'm doing category creation. It's very hard. So I'm doing all of these things. Yet what they're really doing is just trying to figure out how to sell the first few customers. And so that's not really category creation. It's something
1: else. And so I just think the term just gets misappropriated in this early stage. So anecdotally, I have to say, once was on this founder retreat and there was A session about category creation. And just out of interest, I asked the founders there how many companies they believe are generally creating categories. So I asked, like, how many believe that it's 5%? Some people raise their hand, 10%. Actually, after 10%, most people lower their hand. And then I asked the people in the room, how many of you are category creating companies? And over 50% of the hands went up. So I think that was a great demonstration of, uh, I think like people misunderstanding early stage traction with really creating a new category. I feel like category creation has become synonymous with
0: this is hard. <laughs> so like if it's not really working or they haven't figured out to go to market or they haven't figured out the position, they're like, oh, we're doing category creation, and in some way it's helpful emotionally and psychologically, because at least there's a rule book out there for doing category creation. So there's a hope that like what's supposed to be hard and like, I'll just go to this rule book. The problem is, is there is no category creation rule book that's useful early on. It doesn't exist because again, category creation is just long-term thing. So let's talk about one more thing, because I think the question Mm -hmm. that you asked is somewhere in the middle. So what's the other book? The other book then is product market fit. Like when we talk about early companies, we normally talk about two things, product market fit and category creation. So product market fit, that's this notion that the market has a certain shape and then you want to create a product that fits that shape. And then once you have it, everything takes off. But again, most discussions of product market fit kind of have this static view of the market. It kind of assumes the market has a certain need and then you just need to find that need and you do that by iterating on the product. And again, it doesn't quite tell you how to get to 10 million in ARR. It just tells you how to iterate on the product, right? And so I feel there's something in between product market fit, which is this very product static market view thing and category creation, which is this long arc thing, which is what you need to have a good mental moment for getting to $10 million in ARR. Now, what I call it is market annealing. And independent of that turn, here's the intuition. Ready? Okay. What is annealing? Annealing is the metallurgy term where you take two separate things that are two metals that have different forms yeah. and you temper them both so they stick together. So I feel like the early go-to-market motion for most companies, especially those that are in category creation situations in the long term, is it's this iterative process where you're actually softening the market, you're hammering on the market, you're educating the market, you're doing incremental gains, you're figuring out like how it likes to consume things at the same time as you're iterating on the product. And so it's this kind of annealing on both sides. And it goes to the entire company. I think like, you anneal your company, I think you anneal pricing, I think you anneal your go-to-market motion. And again, it's just... If you're not considering both sides in this
1: dance, in this lockstep, I don't think you've got the right view on how to do it. So this is very interesting because I think you were correct. Most people think that markets are these immovable objects, right? And especially for tiny startups, that you just have to find your niche and get through the door and then maybe a lot of value gets unlocked. But what are just examples of what a tiny startup can actually do to anneal that market? So there's so many different paths. So I think the most important thing starts with how
0: you structure your org, right? So there's a bunch of different tricks and we can talk about those. But the most important thing is you don't, before you've annealed the market, chosen what you think the end state is going to be, which is so common. Like we open this podcast and you say, why don't you just do PLG, right? Well, it turns out some markets are amenable for PLG. Well, then you can say, well, why don't you-, you go just to direct sales? It turns out that some product categories don't have the economics that will support a direct sales motion. It's just too expensive. Well, why don't you try inside-outside sales? Some companies and products, you need to have a deeper conversation, a longer sales cycle than you can have over the phone. There's just so many considerations. So the most important thing is, is don't assume you know what is going to end up in this annealing process. It's all part of the discovery. I think early on, you should assume it could be any of these things. And you want the people you hire to be very much generalists to be part of the exploration for you, right? Marketing generalists, sales generalists, and then you engage the market. And then part of engaging the market is asking this very specific question of what is the contrast of the market and then looking at your product and saying, what are the contours of the product and then doing the best that you can to align them. And they'll never perfectly align. For example, it may be the case that the consumer is going to be developers. So that's the end target. But the product that you're building requires some explanation. But because of developers, they don't want you to talk to them, right? So now you're in an annealing situation because there's a fundamental mismatch between the product you created and that you're trying to sell to. And then now it's up to you is to find out how to anneal that. So one way to do that is you write very deep content, very targeted at the developers where you draft on another technology which is already making headway. And then you start to describe your product or even build your product to look more like that. And so you're talking to the developers You're modifying your product to something more that they look like. And then maybe you even start introducing some kind of low-level monetization, even though it is not gonna be viable for your company. Maybe the company needs to have more than a low cost here in order to be solvent, but at least that starts so you can have a deeper conversation, et cetera. So again, the most important thing is you identify a mismatch between your product and the target. And now you know you're annealing, and then you actually start to anneal it with all sorts
1: of tricks to try and get the two to stick. I think part of what you were saying makes a lot of sense, but I think many founders, especially listening to this, might go and ask, well, Martin, but isn't what you just described is searching for product market fee. So the question is, what part of that process do you think that founders who are only searching for product market fit might not be doing and should be doing? Right. So product markets did. The treatments that I am familiar with, maybe there's ones that are not,
0: assume that you're just inquiring on the market, but you're not moving the market. That's Mm -hmm. my experience. So in this case, for example, you can do things like very focused content to change the behavior or the perception of the developers. And then you're changing your product at the same time to be more like something they're familiar with in order to start to get that Basic consertion point. And then once you have that, you may actually decide to create a community and talk to those developers to evolve their thinking even more. And so you're actively engaging in softening the market. Like in my experience, treatments around product market fit don't focus on that motionment or softening of the market. Let me give you another example because it just happened before this call. So I was in another discussion with a company. Great company, very early stage, great technology. And the founder As listen, we're building this thing and we've got these early logos, six-figure logos. And so I looked at those six-figure logos and they were like more traditional G2000 logos, right? Think of like Telstra, like the telco in Australia, Big Bank. And so the founder was like, so we got this. I feel comfortable because I know what they want, but what we want to do is we need higher velocity. So we're going to go ahead and do a bottom-up strategy too. So to get better pipeline, have better velocity. Okay. Now there's many problems with this. One of these is like, that's not going to have anything to do with your top end, right? So what I think in an annealing situation, you should ask the following questions, right? The first one is if you want to do bottom up, you should ask, is your product even catered to bottoms up people? Because they're very different than the Telstra's of the world. And the second one is if you already have the Telstra's of the world, like, why don't you work with that and soften the market that way and expand from there rather than try to do this barbell situation? And that could be more market education. It could be making the product simpler to consume. There's a lot of stuff that you have, but it's using that initial insertion point to sign from the market from it. So I just, I find it a very useful framework to, to be like, okay, there's never gonna be the perfect go-to-market motion. There's never gonna be the perfect fit. Now, how do you iterate off of where you are to broaden your
1: initial traction in a way that will turn into a repeatable business? Would you consider what HashiCorp did with Terraform and the infrastructure as code concept or what Snick did with the shift left concept of getting security sooner in the development cycle as kind of market annealing exercises. Yeah. This is great. Let's, let's talk about Snick first. So what is Guy's genius? Guy has a lot of genius. the CEO of God of I
0: mean, he's a genius. All right. So I think it's worth asking, like, what is so unique about Guy or what did he unlock? And in my opinion, what she unlocked, how do you make developers care about security so this is a great example of annealing like you could assume that going into this like developers don't care about security so why would you ever try or you could assume developers care about security and so there's nothing to do and so you just do it or you could really evolve the way that developers think about the product the way they use about product you could like slip into the workflows and you can slowly over time evolve their experience to be more security meaning and having spoken with the guy very early on through the process, and this is very much his focus, which is like, how do you evolve this cohort and their behavior to have deeper and deeper connection into like security work, right? So that has been very much an annealing example. And again, is that category creation? Out of the early days, I was like, how do you get to 10 million ARR? Now the off creating a category, I think. So many people tried to do what Guy did. So many people have tried that. But what he did was actually soften the market. He actually got the developers to care. That's annealing. Does that make sense? That
1: specifically is annealing. Maybe to use another term is finding the path of least resistance and that people were not aware that it exists that changes the behavior of the market because you're absolutely correct. There was no market of developers or executives telling companies like SNCC, That is exactly the experience that we want. And this is exactly how you should do it. It actually was up to him to find himself. Right. And so let's again, I'm going to repeat myself, but I just think this is so
0: important and bears repeating. So let's cover the failure modes on either side of that. One failure mode is you say developers don't care about security and you just don't do it because it's never worked. And so that assumes a static market. And the other failure mode is you say, Developers care about security. And so I'm just going to go ahead and sell them security, which that is also not true. Right. And so, like, these static views of the market or the power of the product don't work. But you do have to do is say, developers don't now, but they can. And it requires work on messaging, it requires work on product, and it requires iteration. And I think that's exactly the type of thing we're discussing here. And it's ironically the most important. Motion, I think, can really go to market for infrastructure and B2B companies, and it's the least understood and it's the least talked about. Like I just, I literally don't know any good books at exactly this sort of
1: motion. Another example that comes to mind of a company that you're also very familiar with is dbt labs right and what they did in making sql a lingua franca of really data engineering can you maybe share some thoughts on what they did in order to become also market annealing process this is a great one which is so what did what did tristan do at dbt what is the big uh
0: aha it could be like like sql macros for transforms like i don't get why that's so sophisticated this stuff's been around for a long time and i think that kind of misses the actual annealing that happened the annealing that happened was you had analysts and analysts understood SQL, but they were analysts. And then you had data scientists and they use a whole different tool set. So what you could do is you could say, I'm just going to go ahead and I'm just going to engage the analysts where they are and just do tools. Like they, they look in the old way. Or you can say, I'm going to go focus on data scientists and could provide tools that data scientists want. What Tristan said is actually the analysts, they would love to have more sophisticated tools. And people are not building those types of tooling for them. So we're going to actually create analyst engineers. We're going to evolve the tooling. We're going to educate them why more sophisticated tooling is useful. And we're going to go on this journey together. And so it was exactly that. And I think there's a new persona and a new title that emerged as part of this work. But again, the motion implicitly knew that the customer base was pliable. And it would have to be a move to a more kind of developer focused or developer chain-wise use case for what were analysts. And if you didn't move them along on that journey and then move the product to be within their sensitivities, I don't think you would have ended up with EBT. You would have ended up something that catered to data to scientists or something that looked like an old company. And if you just met the analysts where they were at, you'd have an old style company, or if you tried to make a data scientist, you would not have got,
1: again, this is this dance that annealing is. Yeah, So maybe actually to take from a company that actually did metallurgy, the famous Henry Ford, say if I ask my customer what they want, they will say a faster horse, right? I think this is great. But the thing that that quote doesn't help you with is let's say that you create
0: a car. It doesn't mean people are going to buy it, right? And so they actually may still want a faster horse. (laughs) And so the reality is that don't listen to your customer like, with your vision necessarily, but once you have what you have, there often is a lot of work that you need to do so that they understand the similarities and the parallels between it. Does that make sense? I mean, like it just talks to one side of this dilemma, which is they don't necessarily know what they want, but that doesn't instruct you
1: on how to then sell it to them once you've created it. And that's what the are dealing is, the second part. Another kind of misconception that might arise from the example that we're given is that the only way to do it is more of a community-based approach. But I assume that this can be done also using a top-down motion, maybe through kind of influential customers that use your product and then tell it the rule. So can you talk about that a little bit? Is it only a community play in order to anneal, or you can actually do it with like more of an enterprise sales approach? I actually
0: think the enterprise sales approach is easier to talk about with annealing these other two it's just you're the one that brought up the other (laughs) questions that could be which happen to be community-based i think a lot of mark annealing just ends up becoming sales the top-down sales and the reason is you can have long conversations that are sophisticated with technical buyers you can show them the value um, where you run the POC or you constrain it, you can explore what it means to buy it, all of these things, just a lot more latitude. And then the reason that you don't do that is it's just very expensive. And then in some cases, like developers, they don't want to talk to you. But I was actually asked this, for instance, the founders I work with, you know, when early on, I'm like, listen, let's assume money was no object. Could you go right. out by yourself, convince people to use your thing? And if the answer is no, if you can't convince them, like who can? If you can't convince them, do you think the product can do it by itself? Maybe, but it's really unlikely. So my bar for whether like this will ever hunt is whether a founder can convince somebody if it'll work. Now, in many cases, the founder can convince people that it'll work, but nobody else will convince them. But at least you've got something to start from there, Right. I believe if a founder can't convince somebody to use it, no open source will convince them. It. like no level of content unless it's a very mature market, right? And so let's say a founder can convince it. Then there's a question of, okay, well, if a founder it, the founder can convince it, can somebody else is not the founder convinced. And that's when you start talking about building an early sales team. And then listen, now that the founder can convince it with the help of somebody else, can you build a bigger team? But normally you run into this issue where Yes, the founder can get someone to do it, but they won't pay enough to actually support a sales team. And now you're in this kind of dilemma of, okay, do we keep doing direct sales or do we have to change to a, an easier product that you can talk about over the phone? So you're actually annealing the sales motion while you go on to one where you've the amount of conversation you have while minimizing the amount of money that you're spending in order to get there. So I really think the right mental model is, let's just assume that it- The most
1: powerful go-to-market is drug sales. And then you walk back. I assume that you've seen many cases of founders that really thought that, hey, what it is that I'm selling, everyone is willing to buy. And then they went and hired the big sales team just to find out that it actually did not work. So can you maybe help a little bit to the founders who are listening? When do you actually know that, hey, I actually managed to convince several people that they need what it is that I'm selling that I can maybe go and try to the next step of the journey. Yeah, so the
0: biggest mistake is not hiring a sales team too early, it's hiring a head of sales too early. What do they say? Like all countries fight the last war. All head of sales build like their last sales org. I don't know why. It's pretty unique to sales, right? And so unless you know exactly the go-to-market you want and you know exactly how to position it, like you should not have a head of sales. So the way that I always recommend building out sales is the founder sees what sticks to try a little bit, maybe have a little bit of success. The founder brings in a relatively senior sales rep. So Peter Levine and I call this the Renaissance rep and they will also help explore and they inquire on fine budget. They understand early markets. They'll look for different go-to-market approaches, probably help with pricing. It's great if you can have two or three of these people, you know, from different backgrounds in case one's good at commercial, one's good at mid-market, one's good at solution selling, whatever, and see which one starts working. I would do that until you can pretty repeatably have two or three reps hit 80% quota when their quota is three times their OTE. Like I would do that for a while and I would not scale sales until that's happening. Now, I think it, it is the case that like a founder just selling a loan you don't get enough insight because most founders don't know how to like navigate procurement. They don't understand the dynamics of discounting. They don't know how to reverse engineer, look for budget. So I think like a founder's like just by themselves, unless they're really students of go-to-market, probably doesn't give you the insight you need. So if you're going to run this experiment, you owe at least one relatively senior salesperson. But again you only want to hire the sales person very sure this is the go-to-market it's working it's solvent i've got two or three or maybe four reps they're pretty consistently hitting quota then go ahead and hire the right sales head for that type of team in
1: order to scale it so this is great and actually i think many listeners would find that kind of more brass tacks, tactical stuff interesting so let's unpack what you said so first of all we know we should not hire a head of sales first because probably they will dictate too much of how your company needs to behave as opposed to like trying to figure out. Now you recommend of starting from kind of a couple of E's, preferably senior. What about some people think maybe I should continue doing selling and maybe I should hire SDR or maybe some demand gen marketing people. What do you think about the basically the pipeline generation in the early stage? Like how should it be done? Yeah, pipeline is tough in market annealing situations because it reduces almost to the sales
0: problem. You don't know what go-to-market motion you're going to use and you kind of don't know exactly what your ICP is. How do you know? What is the the correct siren song to draw them in? And so in in my experience, you should really lean on your sales team to prospect if that's the route that you're going. And then you should lean into other very high-touch methods such as events tend to be very good in infrastructure where you can actually have conversations. Content tends to very be very good. And again, you're not going to generate a lot of leads. It's not really repeatable. It's not really scalable, but it'll help you discover. What tends not to work is you've got this new thing and you're like, oh, I'm going to get pipeline. And then you like run like ad campaigns or hire some demand gen person that does traditional DG or ABM or an outside DG from. PG is demand gen friend to do it for you. It just, you just don't know enough about what you're looking for in order to run any of those. Those only work once it's just kind of like the head of sales problem. Like until you know exactly what you're looking for, like you don't know how to get it. And so again, from pipeline, I would strongly focus on any sort of community around the product, any sort of content, events, and then sales led conversations and founder sales. And still you feel repeatability. And then like, as soon as you're like, okay, I'm going to hire my head of sales that looks like this, then I think you can start scaling out. Now, I will tell you, there are many exceptions to everything I'm saying. And this is one area there are exceptions. I have seen cases where you've got fairly technical infrastructure companies that are part of enough of a a general trend that like buying ads on Google actually worked or buying ads on Twitter actually worked just because the problem was big enough that people were searching for it. So let's say the problem is like whatever, like transactions in JavaScript. Like there's enough people looking for solutions that if you put in those ad words, then people will come to your content. But at that point, you still have to do a lot of work even to get them to understand what you're doing. And so you need to make sure that you're prepared. It's not like bees are going to likely just transact right away
1: without some sort of a discussion. That makes a lot of sense. Let's talk about this renaissance rep that you and Peter wrote about. How do I recognize one? Because if I'm a founder who never done sales before, do I look Mm -hmm. for the person who did 20 years at Salesforce or do I look... (laughs) For the person who was the first salesperson at Datadog, like how do I find them and how do I know that they are that renaissance rep? Yeah, it's a hard question to answer. Here
0: are traits that I like to see. and They don't always have them. So someone that has actually worked in a large company, so they actually knows what sales looks like and they actually understand procurement dynamics. So they've carried a real number. They've had real quarters. They've got real experience. Like I find renaissance reps work best if they're relatively senior. So that's one. So like I actually worked at a big company, knows what it looks like when it's working. understand it. The like when is nice that they actually have stand-up experience because they understand that actually there are no resources except for myself and the CEO. A lot of the stuff is unknown. And so we're going to have to figure that out. I think any rep where their success happened in the late stages of a brand monopoly, you don't know anything about them, right? If they come from... Google in the late stages, like how hard is it to sell under the Google brand? Not that much. And so it's good to know that they've actually seen the pre Sonic monopoly and been successful so that they understand what those dynamics look like. And then the most important thing is they're really willing to roll up their sleeves and carry a bag and, and sell software. That's what you're selling, like actually do the work. It's they, are more interested in setting a process and setting up Salesforce. If they somehow believe that like pipeline is an issue in early companies, they somehow believe that they can sell the product better than the founder. Any of these kind of common mistakes, they're not the right ones. I have a checklist of questions I ask, which is like, where do you think pipeline comes from, like where's your role versus founder's role? What does it look like when it's working? What does it look like when it's not working? You go through this, make sure that they understand the job. Because the thing about sales is when you ask an engineer, an interview question. We ask them to solve a coding question. Like after you ask the question, the thing they immediately think about is what's the answer to the question you asked. In my experience, when you ask a salesperson a question, they immediately think about why is he asking me that question, and they're trying to reverse engineer your motivation. And so, I think it's very important for you to ask kind of concrete questions around what is needed in these early situations, rather than somehow. You know, having a conversation where
1: they can figure out what you're getting at. So maybe we can also talk about ways to get help of finding that first rep. Let's say somehow I have a list of candidates. When should I involve, let's say, my board member, my advisors, what role should they play in helping me find that first rep? Yeah, I don't know if it's any different than anything else. And then Dries and Horowitz, we've got an exact
0: talent team. They've got a great deep network. We keep track of people throughout their careers. And so, yeah. you know, I just think that you want to see a lot of people to normalize yourself to what the Canada pool
1: set yeah. is. But I don't think that sales relationship is different than any other hire. Also Previously, you threw the word quota and what do you think that the quota should be like whatever, three times OTE and things like that. So maybe let's talk about not so much what exactly the quota should be, but if I don't know anything about my business or like I don't have great projection, do I need to set quota for salespeople or should we have a different arrangement? Like how should that work?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So how do you quote reps early? I've yeah. experimented with everything here like logos, like number of meetings, pipeline generated. And in my experience, salespeople more than anybody else will just work towards the KPI. So you don't necessarily get what you're really after. So, for example, if you quote them on meetings, they'll just take a bunch of meetings. They may not be good. Well, pipeline, mm-hmm. you get a bunch of junk pipeline. Logos is actually kind of a reasonable thing to quote on. Sometimes you find that you've eroded values. Like that one's kind of reasonable, but you need to think about it. What I prefer to do is to just basically set the quota to their OTE. Meaning if you can sell as much as we pay, then at least you're getting somewhere. And the reason is because what you're really trying to get them to do is to sell something. That's what you're trying to do and extract value. And so like now you're hundred percent aligned with what you're trying to do. And you don't really know what that looks like yet. So you know, at least you have to be able to pay themselves. Otherwise you don't have any solvency at all. That's a great place to start. And if that's working. And then as they ramp up, then you need to either get their quotas up to something that creates a solvent company, like three or four types OTE. Or you have to change the go-to-market model so that it requires a different type of seller or it doesn't require sellers at all because maybe you can't clear it. But that I've you should have weekly sales review sessions or sales ops sessions, you should go through all of the KPIs, things like meetings and logos to make sure that all the processes being followed, that's something that you definitely put in the meetings. But when it comes to quota, I really think it should just be getting deals done. And then you should adjust that dollar value target from something that is needed,
1: like the negative bookend, of course, is the OTE, and then you move up. Thank you for that. But one of the things that also I'm, as a kind of first-time founder, struggled a little bit, that... Part of hiring your first salesperson, you compete in a market. And in that market, those salespeople have already well-established companies that pay them maybe nice salaries with a decent guarantee that they will make their OTE. What are some techniques that founders might use in order to convince these first reps when there's just so much variance and there's so much unknown by joining to be the first rep? So the first
0: year, you can just use a draw and just not even have it like, like an unrecoverable loan. Like you'll never actually call it back and you just pay them their own, right? for the first year while you're putting it out together. And then you're going to have to, at some point, figure out how to quote them So either you know that because you have so much experience together and they've booked a bunch of deals or you don't know that. If you know that quota of what you know from the traction if you don't know, it's a good idea to set it pretty low. And then with the understanding with them, that the quarter will increase over time. So then the question, what is low? The lowest you can possibly go in any way that makes sense is the OTE. Thinking <laughs> less than that, you're losing money by having salespeople. And they should be like actually the engines to, to top white in the company. And so uh, the first quarter, you can do it based on, or the first half, you can do it based on their OTE. And then you can do it based on the two OTE, the next, and then three or something like that. But these are the rough bounds that you have to work in. What I wouldn't do, and I, it's not... Super obvious until you've been through it. It's like, I just wouldn't give them bullshit metrics or metrics that aren't directly in line with what you need from them because salespeople are very good at getting their OTE. And so they'll just optimize to that and not what the business needs and what the business needs
1: is stopper to be sold. And so I really think that's what you should focus on. I think like once a month or so, there's like a blog post and Hacker News about, oh, we found a way to hire salespeople without paying them commission. And that's what we believe the right way to do because we don't pay our engineers commission. So why should the salespeople get some commission? And every time I look at it and I wonder, I'm always looking for the blog post that explains, try it for a year or two and let us know how it worked. You're hundred percent correct. I mean, the one thing to the listeners of this to understand is like, this discussion has been
0: around for as long as any of us have been around in the industry and none of these companies have worked. <laughs> or been able to hold to that. <laughs> and so I think like Darwin has spoken. Here's another thing I think that we should all caution ourselves, which is very related to this, which is you should really know what your innovation is and you should stick to that. And like anytime, like you try and innovate on too many things, all you're doing is compounding risk, except for you're not an expert in go-to-market, you're not an expert in all these other things. And so like, listen, introducing a new technology, a new process, like that's risky enough. Right? Like there's no reason to have to rethink all of these other things. And I yeah, now I've, I've done enough of this. I've seen enough companies is the kind of grand unified theory of like how a business should be like those types of kind of mentalities tend to end up with clunky companies that either don't work or are more painful and then get straightened out into what we know works. And then every
1: once in a while, of course, one does, then we all point to those as like the example, but they're absolutely exceptional. So one thing we talked about is having these weekly meetings that you review your pipeline with the salespeople and make sure that they're working on the deals. But is there a point that might be a good indicator that maybe the salesperson is not the right person? And maybe the problem is not that the company, but actually uh, the salesperson is not working out. And maybe it's time to look for some additional sales rep. What are some indications that this might be the case? Yeah, this is why sales makes the money that they do, is because
0: anytime something isn't being sold, it's like the salesperson that gets blamed. (laughs) Because they get fired and it's always board. It's like, oh, we've been a bad salesperson, but who knows? It could be the market. It could be the product. It could be all sorts of stuff. And so I do not have a simple answer to that question. I wish I did have a simple answer. What I will say is if the founder can't sell it, nobody does. So like first step is can the founder sell it? If the founder can sell it, but the sales rep cannot and the sales rep cannot scale the founder? It's the wrong sales rep. Okay. So we got that out of the way, right? So like if the founder's selling it and the sales rep is not able to sell it or I'll have that them out of the way. Can the sales rep sell it without the founder's involvement in at all? That often is a market maturity question. So I wouldn't provide a demerit to a salesperson because they can't sell it alone, but they can with the founder. Now, over time, if an FC can't build the role of a founder and the salesperson still can't sell it, like now we're in trouble again. But I think that like rule of thumb should be, can a founder sell it? Yes or no? The answer is no. No salesperson can. If the founder yes, can the salesperson sell it with the founder? If the answer is yes, they're probably pretty good. The answer is no. It's probably not a fit. And then can them with an FC sell it? If the answer is yes, then you're there. You've got scalability. If the answer is no, maybe it's the SE, maybe it's positioning, I don't know. But now you actually need to just kind of inspect, like, how do you get an SE team to be able to sell out without a founder? And by
1: asking mean, sales engineer, a technical person that helps bring the account to technical close. Since we have you here, there's another topic I would love to talk to you about, which is yeah. the tweet that launched a community, which is Yeag. And as we're recording this, I think we're approaching our... Almost 2,000 members in this community with some amazing conversations. And I would love to hear about what made you think about that idea and what do you think, how do you think it worked? Yeah, so my
0: favorite topics really are core computer science infrastructure, building companies on top of it. And I really believe it's a moral good. I believe we solve problems. I believe there's a whole future to build on that stuff. And Twitter is Twitter and it's fun and it's its own thing. But like, I realized as I was engaging people on Twitter, like it was so close to these experiences I had at grad school where just other people that had the same interest. would we just sit down and we talk about this stuff all the time and something to do over email, something to do it in person, but we just talk about infrastructure. And then the people that would join the conversation are supportive and mutually interested. It wasn't just about this weird dynamic of sound bites, but people were looking for truth. And I just missed those discussions. And so I was kind of wistfully sent to tweet out. I like, listen, I wish there was a great place to have these sort of discussions. Twitter's fine, but that's not it. And then Tim Chen, like, why don't we create a discord group? And at the time I'm like, whatever, I didn't use discord. I'm like, no, so he created the group, a few of us joined. And since then, it's almost like this product market fit then. Like when my company, it took a long time, but once we got the right thing, Everything fell into place. Since that happened, things have just fallen into place. The quality of the people that joined, the quality of the discussion, the even the atmosphere of the meetings that we have. I just think that the industry has all been starving for this level of deep, optimistic, supportive... Bruce finding discussion. And I think we've done a great job recreating that. We're a year in. I think it's the early days where I'm just so pleased with what we've ended up. What's funny is I don't, a lot of these people I have no idea who they are, but we've gotten so, so close. I just become part of my everyday vernacular. So much so that when people Learned that I, like Alex Clemmer, I didn't know Alex Clemmer before, but when people learned that I didn't know about these people beforehand, i like, oh, I thought you guys grew up together. It's like <laughs> that level of like familiarity. You and I have known each other for quite a while as well, but like you know, the level of kind of relationship we have now, is just so much more evolved because of this. And so this I think it's been fantastic.
1: Awesome. And we can end with that. And Martin, thank you so much for joining us today. And it was a lovely oh, a conversation. Pleasure. Oh, what a pleasure. Thanks so much.